This is the 966 episode 76. Hello, Richard. You know, you? I was, I'm doing well. How are you doing? You, I'm you, doing better. You did good. You. Yeah, you, you, you had a round with, uh, with uh, yeah, a good round. I've had, um, a, I've had quite the 10 days, yes. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good. You know, we have to, how are we going to do it? Are we going to have seasons? You mean like Riyadh season and Jetta season? Or, or <laughs> yeah, what do you I mean? wish. Wouldn't that be nice? I'd like to have the budget to do those. But, um, no, I'm talking about, you know, the 966 season. Will we have season one episode or will we have just unfolding episodes? No, this is like a one season. We one. never age. It's all just one existence <laughs> like, in one continuum. <laughs> it, it does keep us young. This is our first season. You know, Yes, this is our first season, our inaugural season. Um, <laughs> and stay tuned for season two. It's coming just after the next episode. It'll be here. Um, Richard, we are back in action uh, with episode 70. Coming up shortly, we've got a really, really great conversation with Antonia Carver. Antonia Carver, excuse me. We couldn't figure out how to pronounce it until we started talking with them. But I actually, had to ask her. Yeah. Same thing. So, and I'm Richard, as you know, intimately. I'm not part of this conversation due to a very serious illness that I suffered upon arriving back from Saudi Arabia <laughs> on Monday, which was just horrible. And I'm feeling better now. But man, not a great way to be welcomed back. Um, and this is Richard, as you know, just a little aside, this is the second interview I've missed due to sickness um, upon returning from Saudi Arabia. So hopefully well, the last. Well, as um, I as I mentioned to <laughs> Antonia, and I, I, I had to clarify with her name too, and I still probably botched it. She's lovely. She's wonderful. She's amazingly informed. It's great. It's very strange doing it without you. I miss you when you when you're not there. But the reality is you live in a basically a, a human bioweapons lab with two youngsters <laughs> so i mean you know you you you're you're you know fending off germs and and all sorts of things non-stop you know 24 7 so mm -hmm. you know and kudos i know to you, you know what just that's missing like. too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it hurts to laugh right now because of the <laughs> vomiting that incurred in the last uh you know 36 hours or so but it does feel really good to be sitting upright extra pale ready to sail <laughs> more than a few pounds lighter after a nice counterbalance to all the weight that I just gained in Riyadh last week. So anyway, the conversation is really, really great. I had the privilege of listening to it as Richard, as you know, when I get to listen to it as an end user, it's really cool. Um, and it got a little sneak peek too, which was exciting, but uh, well done. And um, for our listeners and viewers, it's coming up here in a few minutes. Really, really good. Before we get started, we don't need to, we, we say this every episode, but we have to please subscribe wherever you're getting this really cool, Richard, to see all the people subscribing and, and, uh, tuning into us every week. Um, and very cool to be, uh, hearing from those people in person, um, either in Riyadh or Washington or wherever else. Uh, it's really cool when people are like, Hey, you're the guy from the 966. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> the listeners do exist, but it's cool to see those numbers grow. So absolutely. And it's fun at this point, because, you know, when we started out, we were just doing sort of, you know, subscribers i was a subscriber building the book and now we have so many subscribers they just round it big numbers yes you know, don't, it's not even specific it's just you know thousand plus or this or that yes we were excited about the subscriber that we had for the first few episodes and, and now was, we can use the plural it was a big deal and that wasn't long ago that was what you know that was a little over a year ago yeah um so we really made a lot of progress with this and again it started as just sort of us talking about you know everything going on the work we were already doing and we said let's just hit record and see what happens and yeah it's really exciting to see this and we've got another cool 
awesome year ahead of us of growth. Great guests coming up too in the uh, coming weeks, Richard, as well. And I know you will be traveling to Saudi Arabia in just a few weeks. So we'll have to schedule that in and stuff. Maybe we can do an episode where you're there and, you know, have a little base of operations, but we're working on that. Scheduling is always uh, one of our biggest always. challenges as a lean yeah. operation here. So maybe we'll um, do a man in the street episode. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, let's get going. What's your one big uh, thing this week? Um, it's a, it's, uh, it's a repeat and it's a repeat for a reason. Um, uh, we just say is February 22nd, 2023, the second, the, the, the date of the Saudi Arabia's national founding day, which was just declared as a national founding day last year. So this is the second one. Um, and we've talked about the national founding day and, and why, uh, it was so notable and so meaningful. Uh, it's interesting now we're doing the second because, you know, there'll be a time, there'll become a time, Lucian, where this won't be novel anymore. And 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 I guess that's the point. You know, it becomes part of the national narrative. And and that's what I find so fascinating about everything that's going on in Saudi Arabia. There's many things we find interesting. We talk about them all the time in the 966. But you, you, when you, amongst all the giga projects and this and that and the reforms and that you you sort of miss the bigger thing that's going on and that's the sort of transcending change of perception for saudis um vision 2030 is no longer and has not been and we've had guests on the show like dr mark thompson and others talk about the 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 psychological impact the mental impact that you know the mindset change and how people identify themselves, how Saudis identify themselves, and it's and it's it's very much through the perspective of Vision Twenty Thirty, um, and it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing to watch as a country become sort of a nation, become sort of a, the curator of its own narrative, which is what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And I want to go back to something we we talked about last year at this time about what a nation is, and you know, just to give it a definition, it is a cultural political community that has become conscious of its own coherence, unity, and particular interest. It shares a common myth of origins and descent. Talked about this before, cannot emphasize it enough. A common history, elements of distinctive culture, a common territorial association, a sense of group solidarity. One of the fascinating things about founding day is not so much that what's being put forth is a different story, about the origins of Saudi Arabia. It's now talking about the origins of the first Saudi state going back to 1727, uh, when Mohammed bin Saud, you know, came into leadership of the Emirate of Daria, which is the, you know, the, the capital and the ruling center of the day, you know, and, and created the first Saudi state. This is all fascinating and you can go through it, but the really interesting thing to me is not that this story is being told, but by who's telling it. And it's very much over these past five years, Saudi Arabia sort of claiming their own narrative. And, and I know this from years and years, and you've seen it too, but from years and years of dealing with Saudi, especially when they come out to the West or they go, you know, they, they leave their country of which they are, have tremendous pride. We, we know Saudis, good friends of ours. They're, they, they're very proud of their country. But a lot of times when they're abroad, they're sort of put on their back foot because, you know, the only thing people know about Saudi Arabia is, is often negative things, oil, terrorism, you know, uh, radical thought, uh, intolerance, these things that, that uh, have been used to define Saudi Arabia as something. And, 
the the thing that's fascinating about what's going on is Saudi Arabia is going, nope, we are defining ourselves. This is our narrative. It's evolving. It's changing. We're proud of it. And and we're going to put it out there. And so yeah, HD, you know, so like I said, there there you could look at this, look at Vision 2030 as you know a, a huge construction project or, uh, or you know revamping the regulatory environment. The big thing is a changing the mindset. Um, and we've heard so many of our guests talk about this. So so when we come to a node like this, a nexus, sort of a a, a, a linchpin, you know, national founding day, which is different, of course, from National Day, which is uh, in September. Um, the founding day is a narrative that the Saudis have embraced, and this is our story, and we're telling it. And and that's when you sort of become, as I said, by this definition, you know, you become a nation. Yeah, I mean, Richard, this is this is the big thing this week, really, in Saudi Arabia, because there's a lot to be proud of now, and and everybody sort of realizes what's going on in Saudi Arabia, all the changes, all the developments, uh, the progression and the trajectory of what's happening in Saudi Arabia. But this is uh, really cool because this is about the origin and the foundation and the the base of everything that's happening now goes back to its founding. And, and in America, in the United States, July 4th is pretty much the equivalent of this. And what we're celebrating with July 4th is not just patriotism about what we are doing today as a country and who we are as a nation and how we got here, but how we started. And it's how you start and uh, the story, every story has a beginning. And for Saudi Arabia, this is celebrating the beginning. And you can see it, um, Richard, really everywhere. I mean, it's it's not just, hey, we've got some new developments, some giga projects, and, and Riyadh is much more livable, and there's you know Michelin star restaurants here. It's we are all one people and we have one identity here. And Saudis should be proud of their country, both uh, where they came from and as an emerging power today. This is a really good one, Richard, too, because what it does when, when you have holidays like this, and this is the second um, year, uh, last year they launched this holiday. And I feel like in September, they celebrate National Day, as you noted, and that's sort of celebrating the national identity of Saudi Arabia today. And then this is about the origins. And what you see in the developments happening in Saudi Arabia today is a very serious um, focus on on where they came from. And that is coming out in architectural design. It's coming out in master planning. I mean, there is an identity that is worth celebrating and worth and worth taking a moment or in this case, one day if you're the private sector and two days if you're the public sector into the weekend and pressing pause on everything looking around and saying we're proud of of not just where we are or what we're doing today but where we came from i think it's really interesting you mentioned richard saudis abroad um you know it's it's tough for them i mean there was tough for them before this to sort of have that identity they usually visited nations like the uk and uh the united states as a you know as saudis and they wanted to fit in and they they do want to fit in wherever they go just as we want to fit in when we go there but it's there's there's an emerging sort of identity, and it's cool that this like crystallizes it among all Saudis, and all Saudis can be proud of this. Um, and yeah, I should, we, we're going to talk about this a little bit, but you can see it too in places like Daria Gate, the new development area there, which is just stunning. And you can see it in the celebration of 
Al Ullah and these other places, uh, archaeological places in Saudi Arabia, across Saudi Arabia, where they're they're saying we, we know who we are today, but we really want to celebrate where we came from, just as we do here and other other countries do as well. So this is a big thing. This is the big thing this week, and Saudis are celebrating on behalf of both of us. I, I believe I can wish everybody a happy founding day because it's it's just it's cool. It's cool to see, man. Well, I want to I want to uh, riff off two of your points, if I can. I don't want to go too long, um, but you know the national day it has been in place for ninety years, ninety plus years, <laughs> um, and it's but it's really a geopolitical designation. You know, it it recognizes that Saudi Arabia unified the peninsula into a you know a, a state that's recognized by the UN and the world in nineteen thirty two. It's an external designation. Obviously, they celebrate it because every every country is glad to be. Recognized as a, as a as a you know self governed territory, um, the founding day as we've talked about goes back much much farther and and it talks about how we want to be defined. Saudis want to be defined, but also I want to talk a little bit about Saudis abroad and I think it's really important and we both understand this. But any listeners to understand that Saudis aren't defensive about their country; they love their country, um, and they're very proud of where they come from. The problem so much is common understanding. And I think of my kids. So I have three kids. They, you know, and, and they all subjected, like every every kid growing up, you know, what when you go back to a family event, you know, uh, you know, uncle, aunts, nephews, nieces, whatever, grandparents, whatever, they all go, what are you doing? And they get asked the same question repeatedly. And of course they're good kids. So they want to be responsive and engage and stuff. But you know, it's tough when you don't have a good story. It's tough if you're, you know, you dropped out of school or, or you got into a fight or, you know, you're not feeling good about your job or you, you have difficulty in a marriage. You know what I mean? Your story isn't very good. And when you have to repeat it all the time uh, to an audience that is only partially interested. And this is what I'm saying so much about when a Saudi goes abroad now and we saw it, we did a report last year about uh, a karma research study. Karma is uh, like a PR and, and data and, and media monitoring group that talked about how from 2021 through the first quarter of 2022, global media 2030, Vision 2030, for the first time was the most frequently cited topic for global media. So what I'm saying now is if, if the Saudis abroad, there is a theme, there is something that people can attach to. Oh yeah, we're reforming, we're moving ahead, we're doing these amazing things. Uh, you know, uh, you know, the economy is booming, you know, it's diversifying vision 2030. These are the, the, the story's fun to tell right now. You don't have to be defensive about any of this. Um, and, and I guess that's a, that's a little bit of, you know, real world, you know, you know, environment, real world, just a reality for, for everybody. And that's why I say it's, it's just a fascinating process to see them create their own story, agree on their own story like the narrative and share the narrative. And this story is a story of an improbable nation, which is very similar to the United States. I mean, we are a very large country, the United States, with many different uh, and a very diverse, they call it the melting pot. I mean, different races, different national, uh, original national or uh, uh, originating national countries from, you know, immigrants and really, I mean, people in Seattle and New York and Florida and Chicago, people are very different in the United States, but we share the identity of being American and very similar to that in Saudi Arabia. 
I mean, you had the unification of many different tribes who all now see each other as other Saudis instead of members of a different tribe. And that's so cool. Uh, and that's very improbable. If you were to look back in time and say, hey, this is going to happen. All these people are now going to be one national, uh, one nationality, one group of people. And, um, you know, good, good on them, man. I mean, this is this is this is great and worth celebrating. So there will be some commentator that said, you you white guys. Uh, <laughs> I just want to add add to your comment. It would be similar if the Native Americans ran America. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, because obviously one of the one of the things about Saudi Arabia is that was never conquered. I mean, it was Riyadh was was raised at one point, but it was never colonized. Yes. It's his own, you know, you know, Bedouins, nomads, they're the people who are are obviously Jeddah and the coast are cosmopolitan, but you know, the 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 country is their own and they've been there and 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 so the similar there are similarities for sure. some similarities yes but i just want to make sure <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That we're not missing some because somebody will rightfully say hey wait a second now <laughs> <laughs> so uh, any- richard a, a good one and uh we both wish everyone a happy founding day in saudi arabia we're, uh it's really cool to see very cool to see also the ministry of culture is putting out on twitter and other social networks all the stuff going on in saudi arabia you've got you know festivals and celebrations large and small So if you're there, if you're local in Saudi Arabia, if you are a Saudi, if you're uh, a visitor in Saudi Arabia, there's a lot to do and see over the next few days. Uh, This will run until Sunday. It's a four day holiday if you're in the public sector. And then um, uh, so it just it's very, very cool uh, time to be there and very exciting. So and all those people who subscribe to the Sustag Review know all this already. Indeed, we are. We're just repeating ourselves to those people. And uh, but you're exactly right, Richard, because all week we've been sort of talking about this. This is a huge deal. And so we wanted to sort of highlight that. And that's why it's such a good one big thing. I think, Richard, the second one big thing, uh, tier two, one big thing, which is amazing considering what it is, (laughs) is that Saudi Arabia has revealed plans to build a new downtown area for Riyadh with the launch of the new Maraba Development Company, which will include a new cube like building called the new Maka'ab. Maka'ab means cube in Arabic. Uh, the plans were revealed by the Public Investment Fund last week. The new Maraba project will be built around the concept of sustainability, featuring green areas and walking and cycling paths that will enhance the quality of life by promoting activity, um, healthy lifestyles, community activities, etc. And then, Richard, I'm sort of going to start just as I've, I have been doing here with this sort of who, what, where, when, why, because it's kind of amazing. If you haven't heard of this yet, check it out online. But the development is going to be sort of uh, very large. I mean, two square kilometers is just the main building, which is the Maka'ab, which is the cube. Um, and it's uh, designed to be sort of, uh, well, I'll quote here, an exceptional iconic landmark featuring the latest innovative technologies. The design of the Maka'ab includes first of its kind facilities and will be one of the largest built structures in the world, standing at 400 meters high, 400 meters wide and 400 meters long. That is incredible. That is so big. Um, the cubic shape of the Maka'ab will ensure the ultimate utilization of space and accommodate the technologies necessary to develop the icon. And then, Richard, if you see it, and we'll have some images uh, rolling for this uh, for our YouTube followers and watchers, but inspired by the mo- modern Nejdi architectural style. So it does have the sort of goldish um, Arabic design to it on the outside, but it will be very modern on the inside and and you can sort of see it there's an interesting little 
spiral on the inside. I, I'm actually, I'm not going to do a great job describing it. You have to just go onto our YouTube and watch some of the role here because it's unbelievable. And Richard, I had the unique experience of hearing about this announcement and then being able to tell a handful of Saudi friends who hadn't heard it yet over dinner and describing to it, they went in raw. They were like, hey, uh, so um, yeah, what's going on? I'm like, have you hear, heard about this new gigantic cube they're going to build in downtown Riyadh? And they're like, what? <laughs> no. And I'm like, well, <laughs> let me tell you. Uh, so with the facts out there, um, and just I want to jump to a few observations here. And then Richard, I want you to plug in pretty quickly here. But number one, this is a huge announcement and a big price tag and an ambitious vision. This all sounds very familiar. In reality, one observation here, this when I heard of this, Richard, I'm sure you were the same way. It didn't strike me as one of those big giga mega announcements like Neom or, or Trojina where you had to just take a second and say, okay, if they build this, then wow. And you sort of had to process like, well, maybe this is a vision and what they end up with is shorter or, or sort of not this. But I think when I heard about this, this is just a personal view. I didn't think of it as, wow, this would be ambitious if they built it. I'd sort of thought of, thought of it as, whoa, I mean, they're going to do this. It sort of hit differently. These announcements now, these giga announcements have credibility. I think that matters a lot. You, they're not met with the eye rolls or the skepticism, but rather with wonder and excitement and sort of having your mind blown. So it's it, it's... I mean, that's an earned reputation from Saudi Arabia because they're following up on all their announcements. They're doing what they're saying and they're saying what they're doing. And that's pretty clear. We're, we're six years now in Division 2030. I think that pretty much everything that they've announced from big things to small things, they've followed up on, which is amazing. Um, secondly, second sort of observation, this is a good idea. Uh, Riyadh is a really quickly changing cities. We've talked about that on the show. Uh, one issue with Riyadh, it's the same issue that other cities have like Los Angeles and New York. It's sprawling. And if you want to develop, it develops out. What's cool about the new Muka'ab and this new Mubara development is that it centralizes things in Riyadh and you have other centers of Riyadh, but it's not something that's a massive sprawling development. It's a huge development in a relatively smaller footprint for what it offers. And it prioritizes things like walkability, things like walking to work. Riyadh's not a really walkable city pretty much at all. So when you're there, you're taking a car everywhere you go. And you sort of see that Riyadh has KAFD, CAFT, that's centralized. That's cool. If you're living there and you're working there, you're walking to work. There's, there's just something about that that's really cool. Um, and what's cool about this is same thing. It's built to be centralized to get people to go to the middle. So you have a Riyadh with this design that's concentrating again, and that's excellent. And then third, I just want to note the word iconic is used by the PIF when they announced this. This is an iconic design, and this is an iconic building. And we still must say, you know, if it gets built and if it gets done, but I think, you know, there's a seriousness about, about what Saudi Arabia is doing. This building, the Muka'ab, is amazing. I mean, there's an amazing factor to this. This would be worth seeing with your own eyes. I mean, you would be able to see it flying into Riyadh from the airplane. It would be so big. So there's a tourism angle here. It's not just about quality of life for those living there. But I mean, if and when this thing gets built, it seems like the type of thing that could be on many people's bucket list saying, I've got to see the giant Muka'ab in the middle of Riyadh, which is just stunning and is this, the height of the Empire State Building and I think can fit what what is it, Richard? Forty or four hundred Empire State buildings in it. I, I 
sorry, I don't have that number, but that's a, that's a large number of Empire State Buildings inside of it. So um, just, yeah, I mean, this is rad. This is super cool. So anyway, yeah, very exciting, um, an amazing project. Richard, you may be muted, by the way. Sorry, sorry. No problem. <laughs> I was like, I wait, <laughs> I put him to sleep over there. <laughs> no wonder the show was going so well. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. You get to be the source of information for locals. I that's felt neat. like I came up with the idea myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I look at this. Um, let me look at, let me take a different, another angle. Uh, one, um, you know, when I lived in Riyadh, I lived in the Olea district, which if you look at it, is like the heart of Riyadh. This is when Riyadh was, you know, maybe a million people. Maybe. Um, maybe 40 kilometers from where I lived in Olea to the airport. Um, of course, the, the city didn't sprawl like it did. This was in the 80s when I first lived in Riyadh. Um, and... So obviously the city has sprawled enormously. And what we're looking at here for, for Maraba is out north uh, near the airport, actually. I mean, so so this city center, quote unquote, would be close to 30 kilometers from where I actually lived in the city center of Riyadh, you know, three decades ago. Um, so I find it interesting because a it's nothing there, but but I also I, I find it interesting the Maraba part of it because Maraba is really there was an old Maraba. Maraba is sort of a term for square, or like as in Market Square, or so there, there was, Maraba was actually a square building that was a, a, a center of activity and still exists today. An old Maraba, and and you know Riyadh Riyadh desperately needs housing. Uh, desperately needs to upgrade its livability. You know, so much of what it's doing is pointing towards Expo 2030. It really wants to enhance its bid there. It wants to be a top 10 international city. It wants to reach 10 million people in population. It needs to be planning these things. And so so while I think the Mukab is stunning and interesting, the rest of it is what I find, what might end up being really um, have impact on livability in Riyadh. Uh, and again, the whole city is going north because that's where the room is. And uh, so it, it's a fascinating project. I, I think it's, um, I like these, I love the Daria Gate project uh, because it's, you know, it's organic. It's building on something that exists. There's already a, um, a logic, uh, both psychological and economic to it. You know, a, a new Maraba you know, in terms of the needs of the city has a logic. Uh, Neom, I think is fascinating. It's a, it's an extraordinary, as I've said before, many times, and this is a big swing and I admire it for that. I hope it succeeds, but it's a, it's a different proposition. We don't know if anybody's going to go to the, to the, you know, the North, Northwest of Saudi, Saudi Arabia to live there. Uh, so it's hard to know. But, you know, the logic of a central Jeddah project or a logic of a Daria gate or a new Maraba uh, is compelling or some of the things they're doing down South in, in the Asir and that sort of thing, you know, you can see because there are people here, there's jobs here, there's families here, there's connections here. So if you can give them a better livability that this might represent, uh, it, it's, it, it, you know, it has a logic to it of its own. So 
whenever I whenever I see Giga Projects, you know, I think at this point, and I don't think we're, I'm not, we're not saying anything, we're not putting it down. We sort of filter through the, the PR and say, okay, what's happening here? And what we've seen with the Giga Projects, regardless of the glitz, you know, it, it often has and usually has economic, uh, you know, logic behind it. And and even as they're going through, even if it's a lost leader, it's attracting investment. It's attracting uh, skill sets uh, from abroad. It's creating jobs. It's doing all the things that Division Twenty Thirty wants to do. This is yet another project in it. And so I guess what I'm saying is, when everyone had something to say about the new the macabre, you know, and some people criticize it, some people are really excited about it. I think in the context of a city trying to build out and accommodate and improve livability. It's a really interesting project, even without the Macabre. 100%. I mean, you can't do this project where you used to live or in the old area no, of Riyadh uh-huh. just because you'd have to like completely, you know, level it and start fresh. But that's and, what's really interesting. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. That's what's really interesting. You have sort of the, you know, when you look at these giga projects, and as I've mentioned, as we've mentioned before, you know, uh, our good friends at Knight Frank are tracking 15 giga projects in the US, I mean, in Saudi Arabia. You know, some of them are greenfield. Mm-hmm. Some of them are, you know, remakes of existing infrastructure. And and this is one of those. It's almost a tweener. It's kind of a greenfield, but it's still organic to the existing city. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a city, too. You mentioned this, but real estate is just trying to wrap my head around it because it's just, I mean, it's gone up, up, up just in the last few years. But yet it's still basically impossible to find a, a really good apartment that isn't like a hundred thousand bucks a year to you live know, there. I mean, it's just it's incredible. I mean, so they're I mean, solving office, a real problem with this. So office space is supposed to be something like ninety-eight percent. Yeah. Filled. It's insane. It, it's yeah. it's it's exciting for for Saudi Arabia and for Riyadh. The other thing too that I thought about, Richard, and, and you mentioned Neom. Let me actually make two points here really quickly, and I don't want to go on too long here. I apologize to our listeners and viewers who are excited about um, Antonio. But, <laughs> Something else. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but um, two things. Number one, um, if you're in Riyadh, and Richard, you're going uh, just in a few weeks here, um, you've got to go to the line exhibit. It is unbelievable. And I sort of was like, okay, um, I landed there on Saturday night, and Sunday morning was one of the first things I did just to sort of get my feet wet and get my bearings. And, was, you know, obviously I knew jet lag was going to be horrible. I, and I sort of had high, ex- high expectations because I've seen every single piece of art and video and, yeah. you know, rendering of the line. We had Jacob Mum, uh, CEO of Bechtel Saudi Arabia, on the program a few weeks ago talking about how much dirt they're moving around in Neom to build the spine. I knew it was real. But after seeing this exhibit, I, I just... Mind-blowing is the best way to describe it. The exhibit itself is mind-blowing. It's a huge, sprawling exhibit that goes into detail I didn't even know about. Uh, just unbelievable. And it's free. Just got to register online. It's so cool. Um, but also, Richard, having this come into Riyadh by 2030, as you mentioned, which is a significant date, um, you know, it makes Riyadh, if they do build Neom exactly as they describe it, it makes it competitive with Neom. I mean, Neom is going to be a really, really cool place to live. 7 million people could live there in the line and around the area and got the marina and all this other stuff going on. I mean, that city is going to be cool. This could make Riyadh competitive with that. You wonder sort of if the line comes in like that, if why you would choose Riyadh over the line. But I mean, if this area comes in and this is the place to be in Riyadh, just like Kaft seems like it could be anywhere in the world. I just, it, it's cool to see all this going on really. And, and to see people, see the 
public investment fund and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman follow through on what they're saying, at least, you know, so far. So, you know, and as we talk about this, one of the interesting, the distinction between the line and, and Riyadh, let's say Riyadh 2030, you know, envisioned as they would like to see it somewhere between eight and 10 billion million people <clears throat> and a livable city. This That's a that's a boatload to happen in seven years, by the way, mm-hmm. um, for any of these. So we have to be realistic. Um. I, Mohammed bin Salman has specifically stated he sort of sees the line as 50-50 between expats and Saudis. So, you you know, Riyadh will never be 50-50 expat Saudis. And that's sort of the thing. You know, you may want to live in 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 in, in, uh, in the line and think that's really cool and love it or, or and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, if you're living in Riyadh, you're you can visit your grandparents and your your parents and your cousins and all your friends that have you, you've grown up with. Mm-hmm. Or same with Jeddah or or Damam or Khobar or whatever. Uh, do you know what I mean? There's an organic history there. There's legacy. There's there's ties. Um, whereas neon would neon would be an entirely different proposition. You know, that's a whole new thing in the desert, mm-hmm. and it, it may be attractive to some and attractive to others. And actually, one of the interesting things about Faisal Dureni, who was one of our favorites, uh, you know, the, the the Middle East manager and, and a partner for for Knight Frank, you know, the studies they've shown is there's a whole lot of interest in neon as a residential, but as I understand it, a lot of it is about second homes, mm-hmm. you know, so you might have people with, you know, maybe, you know, so, so anyway, th- th- this is a discussion. Think about this discussion, you know, first of all, Neom doesn't exist yet, but let's say we're looking at 2035 and you have these options, you know, to live in Neom, there's a job in Neom. Maybe you want to raise your family there. Maybe you're a young couple and you're good, you know, really want to be in, you know, the same city as your parents. <laughs> whatever but you're going to have options that you didn't have before 100 <laughs> percent, richard that was yes. uh that was great let's um it's, fun. it's let's, good to have you back it's good to have you your, much. your your sick bed and and, <laughs> and with us my sick bed is right next to me and i have ptsd just looking over at it right now it was uh yeah um that was something else so um here's a conversation that i missed but get to enjoy right now with antonio carver from Art Jamil and Hey Jamil and Jetta, just really cool. And, and Richard, if, if I may just sort of add really quickly to the conversation beforehand, this is sort of part of what we're doing with the 966. You know, we have all kinds of different guests of all backgrounds with all professional focuses and, and arts and culture, it, you know, fits into that story as well. And this is just such a great conversation. So enjoy and um, <laughs> sorry to miss it, Richard. No, no, it was great. <laughs> and if I can add, sorry to add. Yes. But to your point exactly, uh, Antonio Carver was a treat. She's awesome. But it was so much fun. In the course of the discussion, sort of organically came up that we had had an episode with Todd Albert Nims. We had had an episode with Sean Foley, mm-hmm. all people who were deeply involved in the Saudi art scene. And that's one of the gifts of the 966 that I think you and I both genuinely appreciate is the opportunity to interact with these really interesting people across from across sectors and in this case in the arts community and i I think it's just gonna we'll do more and more but it's just i I felt very fortunate to be able to have been able to talk with these folks and also now to to, to include and antonia into the in the list Mm -hmm. enjoy uh welcome uh we're just absolutely delighted to be joined today by antonia carva she is director of Art Jamil, which is an extraordinary initiative uh, that is actually has a, a Dubai uh, presence as well as a Jeddah presence. Um, we have uh, we sort of 
started talking about this some time back. And so we're really pleased that we're able to have you here today. Uh, Thanks so much, Delighted. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, the, there's so much going on in the art scene in Saudi Arabia now. And and I think you can trace uh, certainly a much of this back to the Art Jamil initiative. And I want to get to all that. I want to get to the ability of Jamil, you know, what they've done for the community as well as, you know, Art Jamil. But let's talk about your beginnings and how you got interested in this field and, and your origins, uh, as it were. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, a, a big fan and and obviously you've you've interviewed so many incredible people working in Saudi and working in, in the Gulf over the years. So really happy to be part of this kind of, um, you know, alumni of the of the 966. So, yeah, I studied at the University of Edinburgh in the uh, early 90s and um, I was opted for social science. I'd always been interested in, in the arts, but I kind of thought uh, anthropology and sociology would, would suit me fine, but then managed to kind of shoehorn uh, arts into my anthropology degree and did my thesis on Aboriginal artists in Australia that were working in cities oh. and kind of navigate, yeah, really interesting sort of looking at Indigenous politics and and how the, the presence of art and culture and how those that kind of field and enabled a different kind of conversation about art and identity, blackness and kind of contemporary um, ethnicities and, and politics in Australia. So I guess for me, the route into art was always from the angle of what does it mean to the community? What does it mean to the artist? Not only here's a pretty picture on the wall, but more kind of about the questions and the debates that come out of art making and for me that's never stopped really so yeah it's been since I graduated in 1994 and and have ever since kind of worked in some field in the arts from publishing to exhibitions to film festivals to community events and always just kind of thinking how can art broker a conversation basically. Well you answered the question right out of the gate because your master's is, is, is in social anthropology. Um, mm. So you, uh, you, the interest in in Australia and Aboriginal, you know, aspects of that. So how did you how did you end up out in Dubai and and the Middle East? <laughs> yeah, good question. Well, I came back to to London. I lived in Australia for a, a while and then came back to London in the in the kind of mid to late nineties, and started working then. Um, in uh, at the Institute of International Visual Arts, INOVA, it's, it's, it's acronym, in London. And that organization was looking particularly at how London as a city was becoming a multi-ethnic city. And this hadn't been really recognized in the arts. So INOVA was a kind of very flexible think tank type of model that went into different organizations and worked with them to, to think through the kind of future of the arts and, and looking at the arts as a, a multi-ethnic space. So just so for context, kind of just me. just for context, I hate to yeah. interrupt. This is the early aughts, yeah. right? This is two thousand. Yeah, this is earlier. This is kind of nineteen ninety seven, oh, ninety eight, around that kind of time. Aye. And um, you know, London was coming out of what was known as the Black British Art Movement and into the kind of new understanding of itself as as a multi ethnic city. So I started through that, getting to know some artists that were from Iran and. The Arab world uh, that were based in in the UK, and then started also looking at, at film practice. So I started working uh, with the Edinburgh Film Festival and curating films for the, for for them from what became the kind of uh, Middle East kind of focus. 
so then um you know my uh by the kind of late 90s i was working in, in publishing as well and you know by the sort of early 2000s began to get sort of slightly itchy feet and um <laughs> you know london <laughs> london's a kind of city that you can work in for a while and you know sometimes you just need a bit of a breather from that kind of environment and um my husband is a journalist he specializes in the arab world as well so we kind of thought let's go and check out this city that everybody's talking about dubai you know which is becoming a center not only for the media but also for the for the arts and let's you know we imagined a couple of years and then we'll move on to somewhere at that time we thought beirut or somewhere like that <laughs> um where the, that's where the action is and then very quickly when we got to dubai we realized that this was a city that was really booming and um you know attracting people from all over the world it was a real kind of becoming a real center for um the arab world and south asia so people were kind of gathering there and just a hugely exciting place to be well this is fascinating and i, and I want i want our listeners and our viewers to, to understand you know your time and place we had i don't know if you know dot albert nims um who who we we had on an earlier episode and it was fun to go with him mm -hmm through the comedy scene and the, and the the art cinema scene and, and that sort of thing. And now the, the theater scene, you know, where he was sort of there when it was all coming together. So you're here in Dubai. This is 2003 when you first arrived? Yeah, 2001. 2001. So just after 9-11, we moved to, to Dubai at that point. And um, yeah, I mean, those early 2000s were really a kind of roller coaster in, in Dubai. It was... A kind of, I mean, the UAE generally, but particularly sort of around Dubai. And um, if you can imagine a kind of a time when, you know, higher education, the opportunities in higher education were were growing very rapidly. You had the first kind of graduates coming through from the uh, universities that had been set up in the late 90s in, in the UAE. You also had this kind of time when, you know, just to be... Um, to be very frank, it was it was very difficult for a lot of young people from the Arab world um, and, and people from different Muslim communities at that time to travel to the States uh, to study. Right. It was very difficult for people to get visas. So there was this kind of homecoming in a way in, in 2000 and uh, the early sort of 2000s. And a lot of people who would have gone and studied abroad decided instead to study in universities in the Gulf and particularly in, in Dubai at that time. And um, and you also had the kind of generation that had gone away to study in the late 90s because they there weren't arts programs available at that time. So they'd gone and studied in America, in Europe, and they'd come back to the Gulf as well with this kind of idea of, you know what, let's make our own, you know, New York in the Gulf. Let's let's make a place that's full of culture, that has this kind of vibrancy. So a lot of movements started in those kind of early years. And I was part of this collective um, called Bidun and um, use, riffing off the, the, the word meaning without right. in, in Arabic and also in Farsi and kind of thinking about what it is to be without a very specific home. So it was really kind of tapping into that generation that saw themselves as having one foot somewhere, one foot somewhere else that were making, determined to make Dubai their own city and to really become kind of state cultural stakeholders in their own city so we set up um you know club nights and photography exhibitions and meeting points and collectives and out of that came Bidun magazine which launched in 2003 and um at the same time i was working 
um, for uh, for the art newspaper reporting on what was happening in, in the arts and also for Screen International, which is a, a film magazine. And in 2003, Dubai Film Festival also started and I was part of the um, founding uh, pro programming team for that and particularly working on Arab film and Iranian film for Dubai Film Festival, selecting the films. So it was a time of sort of big shifts and a lot of kind of ground up energy, particularly in Dubai. And then after, over the years towards the kind of mid 2000s came um, the plans in Abu Dhabi for Sadiat Island, the Louvre Abu Dhabi, the, the Guggenheim, there was that kind of uh, vision sort of started up at that point. Um, and then in, in Qatar, things began moving as well. You had sort of stirrings of people understanding, you know, that there was this hugely vibrant arts movement in Saudi as well through the work of Edge of Arabia, which was, um, you know, the international community understanding, I mean, you know, what was going on in Saudi, uh, which was something that Arch Jamil was in, involved in. I wasn't at that time part of Arch Jamil, but we were <laughs> observing and, and, you know, celebrating this great kind of movement. So the, the reason I brought up the kind of universities and, and young people moving into the city is just sometimes you this sort of perfect storm develops where you have the rise of higher education you know and cities that have really vibrant university campuses always you know have a special kind of boost when it comes to the arts you had this kind of groundswell of people thinking about what can we how can we express ourselves in our own terms from the gulf not what's imposed from outside but how do we tell the world who we are and how we live and what we want to be and then alongside that you have the establishment of um, Dubai Media City so people working in advertising magazines newspapers in design all sort of setting up shop CNN moving in you know everybody kind of setting up shop in Dubai and then alongside that the Dubai Financial Center so people who work in banking and uh, you know convened in Dubai from across the Arab world and South Asia and a lot of these families uh, were people who'd always been interested in the arts in their own hometown. So they kind of naturally became these kind of supporters and people that were interested in sort of really investing in the arts and getting involved. So it was, yeah, I, there's a lot more to say. I don't know whether to go into Well, that's, that's, that's fascinating. And it's really curious listening to you speak because clearly the Dubai phenomenon, you know, that began in the early 2000s and, and everybody watched from afar, but you're, you're, you're on the ground there. And it seems like a whole ferment of, of not only expats, but uh, a significantly and most importantly, Emiratis. But there also seems to be an overlay of policy that, you know, came in and said, OK, this is important to our growth. This is important to our identity. Uh, we're going to support it. Is, is that accurate? I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was also a time when... Um, you know, the, the Gulf itself was beginning to, all the different countries of the Gulf and the different scenes, very different from each other, obviously, you know, if you compare Kuwait to UAE or Saudi, very different kind of set of realities. But there was a kind of idea that the Gulf states could act in a very particular way to bring people together. So you had this kind of ground up movement and this kind of, you know, establishment of gathering spaces that brought together people from across the Arab world with other people from, uh, from the wider Middle East and, and from South Asia, and then their kind of international counterparts, that the Gulf states could act in this very particular way to really create very meaningful gathering places that were much more difficult elsewhere for various different right. uh, you know, geopolitical reasons, basically. And 
and then you know they could create these kind of gathering points and then they could also become places of knowledge production that you know and I think that was the hardest nut to crack because internationally people understood oh you can go to places like Dubai or Abu Dhabi and nowadays to Riyadh and, and to Jeddah and you can meet a really interesting cross-section of people that you never meet anywhere else but what they didn't quite understand and really is only really coming to fruition today really is this idea that you can develop and grow particular systems of knowledge and of you know kind of original ideas when it comes to culture that really don't exist anywhere else so that was a kind of a later kind of development but what happened in the mid-2000s was then yeah exactly as you said you know the governments um of the gulf particularly the uae and then later with qatar and now with saudi began to recognize that culture within culture you can have a very particular conversation that's really tricky to have elsewhere you can open up doors for really kind of meaningful exchange. And basically, I mean, governments started to use this word soft power, you know, how can the arts be yeah. kind of a new way of projecting who we are? And we know, you know, just to be, I mean, we can be really honest on this podcast, you know, that it's not, it wasn't an easy ride at that time, you know, post 9-11 through the 2000s, the Arab world from the outside was viewed in a very particular way, quite often a very limited way. And people were very used to seeing on their TV screens images of war and, you know, kind of crisis, but they weren't used to seeing uh, projected from uh, to the outside these ideas of incredibly deep and meaningful culture, cultural, cultural history and contemporary practitioners who are doing extraordinary things. So that was, it was a real switch in the conversation. Suddenly we were talking about painters, dancers, you know, filmmakers and people being incredibly creative, often against all the odds. And that was a complete change in the conversation. It took a lot of banging on doors to get people to take notice <laughs> <laughs> and to want to have a kind of positive, you know, story coming out of the Middle East. But I think I'm, I'm obviously incredibly biased, but I think art and culture really brought to the, uh, brought a whole new conversation out into the world and enabled people to see people from the Middle East in an entirely new light. Well, there's so many themes in what you've just, that was wonderful. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the convening power, you know, when you make a, a, a place welcome and open, the convening power, the, the sense of uh, building a new identity, you know, the awareness of soft power. And we sort of see history repeating itself in certain ways. You know, these are these is this is vocabulary that you can apply in, in significant ways to Saudi Arabia today. But let's so let's bring you back. Let's let's follow you until you come back to uh, Jeddah, in essence. So one of the one of the significant elements of soft power was that Dubai Film Festival, which which yeah. you were a part of. I mean, and I say that because this is the sort of thing because we're all sort of media. You know, we're besieged with media and celebrity and this and that sort of thing, but. But, you know, that's the sort of thing that would seep into a normal person's conscious outside of the Emirates. You know, there were celebrities, there were known people going to be part of this big thing. And you were you were part of this big thing. Yeah, no, it was an absolute blast, I have to say. I mean, we when we started in 2003, it seemed like an impossible task to have the first sort of outside of Cairo to have a first international um, film festival in the Arab world and one that really not only attracted celebrities from Hollywood and, and Bollywood 
but also projected a new kind of geography of the world not right. new geography but right. a geography that was newly understood for the first time so you know films from across africa from the middle east from iran from south asia so really very quickly dubai film festival became the place to come and discover films from the global south basically and and all sorts of films documentaries shorts features you know and so you'd have this extraordinary kind of we're going back to the same thing again about this kind of extraordinary sense of exchange and a, and a gathering point where you have you know george clooney on the red carpet and then you have <laughs> uh, you know a first-time filmmaker coming from nigeria and you have uh, you know bollywood stars and then you have documentaries on what was happening in Palestine or, you know, the Iraq war years, this was going all, all the way through that period too. So people kind of really telling it like it is and, and showing films that were from that perspective, from the ground up again, but matched with these incredible, uh, you know, um, nights of, of global premieres where you'd have the most glamorous crowd ever. So it was a really kind of, a real kind of juxtaposition of all these different types of positions that can happen in film. And I think one of the most exciting things that came out of that was not only the glamour and, and incredible kind of legacy of Dubai Film Festival, because alongside it, I mean, you had things like the world premiere of Wajda, the uh, Haifa Mansour uh, film out of Saudi that then went on to be a massive global success. It won its first mm -hmm. award at, at Dubai Film Festival. So you had all this kind of investment in production and investment in, in homegrown talent. But then on the, uh, every Dubai Film Festival was every December, but every kind of spring, we started this Gulf Film Festival. So this was saying, you know, okay, we have this massive international platform, which brings all these kind of stars to the city and really reinvents the kind of identity of what Dubai was and, and the kind of people that can hang out there on right on the global stage. But then we also set up this Gulf Film Festival, which had a completely different vibe you know, Arabic was definitely the first language. We invited film fest, you know, film makers from all the different Gulf states, and everybody met up there. Most of the films were short films, but over the years, features started to come through. Mm -hmm. And this was a real, like, you know, homegrown kind of atmosphere where most of the filmmakers were were young. They were all in their kind of twenties and thirties. You know, we sort of. I was, you know, quite often there were very few people that didn't speak Arabic. It, it was a real kind of very much a homegrown crowd. Everyone would stay up all night, you know, <laughs> drinking tea and smoking endless packets of, of cigarettes and sort of, you know, dissecting their films and, and getting together with each other. So <laughs> had this tremendously sort of old school, yet incredibly productive atmosphere. And out of that came amazing scripts. There's still filmmakers now that I see making features in Saudi who are part of that original movement. And at that time, if we're just, you know, touching on Saudi there wasn't the infrastructure in Saudi at that time. There were, obviously, this was pre the rebirth of cinemas, way pre. So people were making, doing things DIY themselves with their friends, getting together, making short films, you know, uploading them to YouTube, coming, bringing their films with them to the Gulf Film Festival to discuss with their friends from across the Gulf. And, you know, it was an incredibly vibrant atmosphere. And I remember that time there was a kind of, you know, perception from uh, expats living in the UAE or across the Gulf that we were somehow living in a non-critical society. And I used to say to them, just come and see a bunch of short filmmakers, you know, at the Gulf Film Festival, and you'll have to eat your words and <laughs> your hats as well. Because, you know, you had the most kind of vibrantly critical 
atmosphere there. People would show their films. The Q&A session would go on for hours. Everyone would dissect them and then say, hey, I'll help you. You know, I think your music and your film is terrible. I know a friend who's a composer. Let me help you rework your film. So it's this very kind of vibrant, productive atmosphere that really a lot of people coming to it would say, I feel like I've been to film school for a week. Mm. But the most intense kind of film education you can ever receive in my own language, with my own kind of comrades who share this kind of passion for film and culture from the Gulf that speaks to the Gulf, that has, you know, has uh, Gulf characters, actors, everybody. So for me, it was one of the most kind of a real game changer of a, of a kind of event of any kind, because it also kind of signaled, you know, we can do this ourselves. We don't have to import from outside. We have talent, we have stories, you know, from the Gulf, let's, you know, uh, give them to our audiences and then export them to the world. And I would, as an observer, you know, you created this platform, this opportunity to showcase that uh, that released, energized the, all this existing talent. Correct? I mean, it was there, and so that's yeah. on, on what what that what, that's on one side of it. But also, it seems like when you got to the other side, there's an audience for this significant. You know, so you you know, as this nexus, you know, that you created here, not only to give these artists an opportunity, but you they created their work. And there were people who really were very interested in, in seeing the work. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I have to say, it's not me alone. I was just part of a team. Right, and, right. you know, but it was a, a big group of people. And actually, quite a few of the key players from Dubai Film Festival are now running the Red Sea Film Festival in, in Jadza, which is... We, in its we, we will get there. We will get there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're on our way to that. Again, because yeah. it's just, it's really, it's really fascinating to do this. So, all right. So, so mm -hmm. sorry to, sorry to uh, interrupt there, because I, I want to, I want, do definitely want to get there. So, not at all. Not at all. I mean, I, I think I'd, I'm a passionate believer in people being able to see themselves on the screen and what that means. So if, you know, if you're someone like me or, or, or I assume you too, you know, you've grown up in, an, in a world where you can, you go and see films that where people are speaking your language, you know, and that you see yourself reflected on the screen. And you almost begin to take that for granted because of the ubiquity of that kind of media, right? But I mean, if if you can sort of think of, I mean, one example uh, from a, uh, we had a Kenyan film at Dubai Film Festival one year and, you know, we would, it was the first year we were showing a lot of films from Africa and we were struggling a bit with the audience. So then us kind of programming team said to the box office, you know, give us all 10 tickets, free tickets, and we'll get people into the cinema that really need to see these films. So we each took a bunch of, of tickets for, you know, very first time filmmakers from across Africa that were showing their films in, in Dubai for the first time. And um, all the Arab films were always completely full and all the English language and, and uh, films from India were really full, but these ones were struggling a bit. So we took these tickets and we just went around in the hotels and places where we were frequenting, spotting people and just saying, hey, do you want to come see a, a film? And I gave um, a ticket, a bunch of tickets to the security guards and valet people at the hotel next to the uh, to the cinema and said to them, hey, if you want to come and see this film, you know, just if you clock off, come along, it's free. And they were like, really? And you know, had to really <laughs> sort of persuade them and said, yeah, yeah, OK. And I remember seeing this guy the next day that was parking valet cars and he just said, you know, that he's he said, I've never seen anything like it. I saw myself in the cinema for the first time ever. The person on the screen 
spoke my language, my my own language from from Kenya, and he was me, you know, because it was a film about a guy that leaves his village, that goes to the big city, that tries to make it big, and you know this kind of thing. And he was in tears, and he said, "I've I've never had an experience like this ever in my life." And and he said the the film director was there, and I talked to him, and you know he he had this kind of epiphany, you know. But he said, "I've seen films all my life from America and and films from India, but I I've never seen me." And yeah. I I always remember that because it was absolutely goosebumpy, and I kind of thought, right, everybody deserves the chance to see themselves on the screen. And we can never forget that kind of feeling of representation and the confidence that that gives you and the way that culture can, at that time, I thought this, this film has changed this guy's life, you know, and he said, can I go back tomorrow? And, you know, I can, this, I, I can see myself. I, I like film now. I get it, you know, and it was so, it was amazing. So I thought this is, that's a light bulb moment, you know, and we should, that we can replicate that, that across every art form. Yeah. It's all it, about representation. It's a, mm. uh, you know, as, you know, as a white American male, you know, perhaps <laughs> the most privileged species to walk the earth, um, you know, that's something that w someone like me, it, it doesn't immediately hit you. Certainly, because obviously there's so much, uh, you know, expectation, privilege involved, things you're, you're not even aware of, you're not thinking about. But I, I, I can, you know, I can I can see that and understand and, and recognize that how how meaningful yeah. that would be when you stop and step back and look at how pervasive one perspective is. Um, so. Archimiel. So you you and and thank you for that. That's just just a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful drawing of the time and the place and the and the power and the energy involved and and the real really significant and, and dynamic role that played in, in in not only just in say you know just the sector but the culture and self-perceptions and that sort of thing um so you you became director of art jamil in dubai yeah so yeah i was well i worked um a parallel to Dubai Film Festival, and then it became a, 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 a my full time position at Art Dubai. So this was the um, art fair that started in uh, two thousand and six. Uh, yeah. So then I was working in in Dubai for Badoon Magazine and all these various different you know uh, hats with the film festivals and everything. And then I moved into being director of the of the art fair. And um, from 2010 to 2016. So that was a really interesting time when also, you know, in parallel to this, the story of Art Jamil was starting because, I mean, Art Jamil goes back um, 75 years that Jamil yeah. family have been involved in philanthropy in, in, in Saudi and around the world. But uh, Art Jamil as a sort of branded entity began in the early 2000s as well. So this was a kind of part of this parallel movement, uh, you know, you could see the development of Art Jamil. It's that's when the Jamil um uh gallery at the VA started, which is the the, the VA Museum in London. It's their their lead their Islamic galleries, which are some of the uh, most kind of prominent Islamic uh, art galleries in the world. And alongside that, uh, the Jamil Art Prize, which is a prize for um artists from around the world that are inspired by Islamic design and Islamic art traditions. So this was kind of launched at the same time. And then you also had in parallel the Edge of Arabia movement. So that was something that Ferdi Jamil, the founder of, of Art Jamil, was very heavily involved in alongside Ahmed Mata and Abdul Nasser Garam and 
Stephen Stapleton, so a British artist and two Saudi artists. This began at the same time as well. So the, the world was starting to kind of pick up a little bit about what was happening in, in Saudi through the prism slightly of international activities and also through Art Dubai itself. So Art Dubai was where um, Atha Gallery, the leading gallery from Saudi Arabia that's based in Jeddah, where they had their international sort of debut. So Atha Gallery brought Saudi artists to the platform of Art, Art Dubai, which was mm. this you know international art fair that's attended by the international art world once a year, every March. It's actually next week. So <laughs> it's, it's back again. <laughs> so good timing. And um, so there were all these kinds of parallel things happening at the same time. And also this kind of, just to, uh, the kind of backdrop even further was really an understanding on the part of the international art world that, you know, it wasn't all about London, Paris, New York, which tends to be the kind of assumption of the art world. There was a kind of realization that actually there were these other capitals around the world. Art Dubai was the first um, uh, art fair in, in Asia to set up in 20, mm. uh, 2006. And then after that, you had art fairs in coming in Hong Kong, in, in Delhi. So there was this kind of proliferation across the rest of the world and this sort of awakening from big museums and the art world and the art market um, across uh, Europe and North America, that there was this other art world that had always been there. And actually artists from the global north had been sort of mining the global south for inspiration for a very long time. This exchange had been going on, but it meant that this kind of world was opening up at the same time. And then um, uh, I knew of obviously of Art Jamil's work and I knew of the, the extraordinary philanthropy of the Jamil family um, for many years. I mean, they're absolutely renowned um, uh, globally for their role in promoting art from the Middle East and also with Community Jamil, which is Art Jamil's sister organization with uh, looking at social welfare and education and nowadays also looking at the climate crisis and what we can do about that. So this extraordinary uh, family of philanthropists, uh, three generations um, of philanthropists. And I just happened to uh, sit next to Ferdi Jamil at a, a dinner at some point in, in 2016. And we got chatting about education and the arts and what the arts can do for learning. And this is a big sort of passion of mine. And I had, I didn't, I didn't know at that time that Ferdi Jamil was um, even more kind of, you know, dedicated and knowledgeable about that kind of field. So we just sort of struck up a conversation. And by the end of the the dinner, um, you know, we were cooking up all sorts of plans for, for Archie Meal. <laughs> so then when he said, do you want to come and um, be director? And we're, we're just embarking on a whole new, you know, phase for Archie Meal. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I loved my job at Archie Bay, but this was absolutely irresistible opportunity and a total honor, really. What a fortuitous evening. That's that's I know. for all of us. <laughs> um, so I, that is an extraordinary family. I don't know the family. I, I've known of Jamil. And, you know, uh, for, actually, to be honest, for a long time, I sort of just sort of paid attention to the Babrisk Jamil, you know, because uh, sort of right. entrepreneurial things they were doing. Again, this is well before Vision 2030 and the focus on, you know, entrepreneurial and training and that sort of thing. They were doing this private initiative because they thought it was important. And of course, the art outreach. Um, so he so he 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 sold you and it didn't sound like a hard sell. Um, to come, come, 
get what's the the what's the relationship between the Dubai Archimiel and the Jenna Archimiel? I mean, in, mm. on the same umbrella, I guess. But I mean, what, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I mean, I I guess there's a kind of common thread that runs through all the Jamil philanthropy um, endeavors. You mentioned Bad Risk, which is super important. You know, community Jamil has a base in Saudi and also a base internationally, and then there's Art Jamil as well. So and many other initiatives with scholarships and and all kinds of programs. But I guess the the common thread which um, our board always emphasizes is kind of how can you create impact on society? How can you make a difference? And how can you shift uh, communities and societies into new ways of, of interacting and of living together? So there's a kind of common thread that runs through everything, even if it's from a scholarship for somebody to go to university or something like the incredible labs that exist at MIT, the Jamil uh, Poverty Action Lab, for example. So there, there, there are kind of, you know, very different ways of applying this, but even through the arts, it's the same common thread of real impact and community-oriented impact. So this runs through everything. Um, my my role is um, director of Art Jamil. So you can imagine Art Jamil as a kind of umbrella foundation that uh, contains the team. We're almost 60 people now. When I joined in 2016, we were three. So we've had this extraordinary growth. And um, so the kind of the incredible talent that works for Art Jamil, the ethos of, of what we do and our kind of global presence through online activities as, as well as things like our collections and our, our libraries. So there's a kind of mother foundation. And then under that sits two uh, um, sites or venues, if you like, the Jamil Arts Centre in Dubai, and now as of a year ago, Hi Jamil in Jeddah. Mm -hmm. So these two yeah. institutions, and I think what's interesting and what I, you know, one of the things I love about Art Jamil is that from the very beginning and, you know, for the past 20 more years, Art Jamil has, didn't have a base. You know, it was always working in collaboration with other people. And so it goes back to a similar model to Innova that I mentioned at the beginning, the London organization that I worked in in the late 90s of how can you kind of, you know, work with other people and go in here and go in there and really get across your ethos and bring up other kinds of entities with you as you grow. So that kind of sense of collaboration and exchange is absolutely in our DNA for Archimiel, even though we now have these two um, incredible buildings and sites and museums to kind of take care of and, and to grow. So I was very lucky at joining Archimiel just in, in 2016, when the foundations for each of the two sites were already there, actual physical foundations. And we were working with you know, the architects on imagining these two buildings and what they can deliver to each of their cities. So it was a really incredibly, you know, kind of time to really think utopian, which we've tried to hang on to as a team and, and kind of think, how do you really make a difference? How can we make sure that whatever we do is pioneering, that's kind of really delivering something new to our cities and our communities, doesn't replicate what's there already, and is fleet-footed and responsive and listens and tries to provide. So that's our kind of working model. And um, uh, yeah, and I'm hugely lucky. I work with a whole bunch of incredible people. Um, I've never actually listed the nationalities of the team, but we must be we're around 60 people, I imagine, from at least, you know, 20, 30 different places. So 
a lot have grown up in the UAE and, and in, in Saudi, but and bring all that kind of knowledge with them, but also bring such a diversity of experience. So I yeah, it's an incredibly exciting and thought-provoking kind of environment to work in. It's it's I think it's important to hear conversations like this. Uh, you know, there are Jamil families out there. Obviously, this is a, a, a extraordinary example of you know a, 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 you know a, a family with a purpose and a vision and and, and sort of an, an, a, an egoless approach. You know, where we really want to get something, achieve something, and, and make a contribution. We're not particularly care who gets the credit. And you can accomplish so much when that happens. But there are other families like that, and I don't think I don't think that's you know something that people outside of Saudi Arabia or the Emirates or elsewhere are fully aware of. But let's take you. Mm-hmm. You've referenced the Hey Jamil, which opened last year. Yeah, what that's is right? What yeah. is what is Hey Jamil? Yeah, well, just um, yeah, I'll just I just wanted to pick up on something that you said because I think it's so important. This kind of egoless philanthropy, and that I think that's such a a good way of summing up the Jamils. I mean, I often try to sort of, when I meet people from, uh, I mean, in the art world and in the world of philanthropy and NGOs, they're a household name, but from the outside, you know, people don't always quite clock on to their kind of significance. So, you know, I I tried to, we had a whole big group come from uh, some of the museums in New York recently and in LA. And I I kind of tried to say, well, if you think of the, the nature of, you know, the Rockefellers or the Fords or the, these kinds of families, this is what the Jamils are to in Saudi. So there's right. a kind of absolute kind of recognition of, of, of the name. And obviously, Abdul Latif Jamil, the business is incredibly well known and part of the fabric of every city in, in Saudi. So we we planned these two institutions. Actually, the High Jamil in, in Jeddah was planned long before the center in Dubai, but oh. Dubai kind of you know took <laughs> off and Typical kind of, you know, Dubai construction story went very, very quickly and uh, our centre in Jeddah went slightly more slowly. But actually, then, you know, the timing with Jeddah turned out to be incredibly serendipitous because it's, you know, hit this wave of development in Saudi of cultural opening up, which was in, incredibly lucky for us to to hit that kind of moment. So um, in the end, it was as it was meant to be. So we we looked at each city and thought, you know, what does each city need? Dubai has the market, it has galleries, it has these sort of uh, government models of a biennial in Sharjah, museums in Abu Dhabi, but the UAE doesn't have a kind of flexible contemporary museum that can showcase the kind of breadth of young artists. So we thought in Dubai, what we really need to do is a contemporary art museum. And then we also figured out that there's no kind of visual arts library a place a free library where anyone can go the curious uh, can do their research anywhere in the gulf so we thought the jamil library should sit in dubai an open access library for everybody that focuses on gulf studies cultural books uh, telling the exhibition histories and the cultural histories of the gulf and that sits in dubai but in jeddah you know an absolutely incredibly vibrant city a city that's you know really a a kind of a place of that for centuries has been uh you know a place that kind of processes and introduces pilgrims from around the world to Saudi so incredibly kind of cosmopolitan city as well 
and a young people, you know, Saudi in generally has a, a young population that's very and very much the case in Jeddah as well, and a very creative space. So we knew there were artists, fashion designers, you know, filmmakers, theatre enthusiasts. Everybody was there in Jeddah doing their thing, and had been for some time before the uh, reopening up and this new kind of renaissance of, of today. But people were kind of hidden in their own spot. So what we thought Jeddah really needed was a creative hub, a place that brings all those different art forms together, that's a kind of informal, dynamic, entrepreneurial, you know, kind of very vibrant um, kind of meeting point, basically a, a gathering space. So Hajimil is um, quite a large scale building. It's around 17,000 square meters. Obviously for people that, that speak Arabic, Hai or Hay is a kind of reference to neighborhood. So it's really about a kind of community neighborhood uh, that brings together all the different creative disciplines in one spot. So it's, and the design is by this fantastic architectural firm called YY, <laughs> who are kind of part Japanese, part Lebanese, based in Dubai. They just won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale last oh. year. So they're on the up, they're award-winning, incredible thinkers. And they said, let's, let's create a building that is entirely open on the inside, all, all the kind of buildings, uh, you know, congregate around a central courtyard. So it almost feels like a kind of typical yeah. Jeddah house, but on a much bigger scale. We won't put windows on the outside. We'll respect that this is a residential neighborhood. And also once you're in the into the sort of central part of, of Hai, you know, you're part of the community. You're, it's almost like a kind of big group hug you know, for the creative <laughs> industries, bringing everyone together in one spot. Now, now that's good architecture, if you can get a group hug, hug effect. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and it's an entirely open, it's free, anybody can walk in off the street. But once you're in it, it has slightly kind of, you know, you feel protected in it, which is great for the arts. It kind of yeah. a great sort of nurturing um, kind of quality. And then obviously Art Jamil runs the, the whole space, but... We operate, we, we run it all, but we only operate our own not-for-profit initiatives in around sort of half the building, two-thirds maybe. Um, and that includes high cinema, which we can come on to because it kind of comes full circle from what we were talking about earlier. Um, high arts, which is our exhibition block, studios for artists, um, an incredible multi-purpose space that anybody from the community can, can rent. And that's been home to farmers markets and high-end exhibitions, to conferences, to meetings, to everything. And then we have a specialist children's zone, High Explorers, uh, which is a kind of young persons and uh, children's kind of arts specialist centre. And then the rest is all given over to incredible Jadawi creative entrepreneurs. So everything from Aisha Academy, which is um, a baking school. Um, so the smell of croissants kind of you know, comes oh, over wow. the courtyard. Boy, this is a group hug. It is a group hug, exactly. Completely. What else do we have? The incredible comedy club, which has been running for many years in Jeddah, but now they finally have a home of their own. And Finnec, they do classes and everything from, uh, you know, confidence building for teenagers to public speaking for business people. So they they're all about how does comedy and performance open up a space for everybody. It's the one rule that if you're a high resident, as we call the, the kind of tenants, you have to do something for the public. You can't just squirrel away yourself and mm. work every day. It's all about delivering something back to the community. Mm. So Mohtara, the publishing house, for example, they publish books and they 
do all their editing and designing in their space, but they also run workshops for other people. Atha Gallery is there with an incredible immersive art um, kind of center. Oh, who else have I forgotten? It's such a, an incredible range of, of different kind of enterprises. We have 10 different tenants now that have spotted that space. So the dream is, you know, you can show up to Hyde Meal, you have the best coffee, the best croissants, fantastic F&B, you can see a film, you can see an exhibition, you can do a class, you can hang out in the courtyard with your friends uh, attending a music concert. It's just a kind of whole encompassing world. It's, uh, and we're so lucky. Yeah. We've been, Jeddah has taken us to their hearts and has been incredibly supportive. And it's a blast. Somebody that, I will be in Jeddah um, March 12, 13. Would oh, amazing. Would love to come yeah. see it. Absolutely would love to come see it. It sounds like a, a, you know, a destination, a showplace, an incubator, uh, everything. A hug. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, a hug. Definitely. Hugs on tap. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to. Yeah, we'd love to invite you. And if you're there, um, I don't know whether it, it sounds like your your trip is a, is a set date. But, you know, as an example of the kind of festivals we do on from March the 1st to the 4th, we have Hai Matsuri. Matsuri means festival in, in Japanese, and it's a Japanese-themed festival. So it, there's a market <laughs> with incredible food. There's all these Japanese products. There's uh, what uh, drumming displays, um, music. There's a film festival. So it's, again, this kind of idea of how you really open up to the community and do something for everyone. Well, let me, uh, let me ask a big question. And and you have you you're extraordinarily well equipped to address this and, and but I don't want to I don't want to ask too much. Um, the Jetta art scene, what is the Jetta art scene today? How is it evolving? Uh, can you can you put it in context uh, between now mm -hmm. and and five years ago? However, how is it progressing? Yeah, well, I'm sure your listeners are um, well aware of this kind of absolute. Uh, you know, what I, I used the word renaissance before, but a kind of revolution in terms of how culture is perceived, perceived within Saudi and how it's projecting itself to the outside world. So the scene that we have now is wholly different from two years ago, let alone five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. I mean, it's it, we have to be really careful not to sort of overstate the newness. You know, cinemas are returning, not being invented for the first time, obviously, you know, there have been people working particularly in Jeddah, which was always known as the kind of uh, cultural hub of, of Saudi for many, many years. The a whole um, body of uh, local families used to run the, the Saudi Art Council doing a, this exhibition 2139 every year for the last 10 years. The first time I went to Saudi was for, for the 2139 um, 10, 12 years ago, something like that. And so there's been people that have been working on the ground, let alone all the all the creatives that we just mentioned before, they've been getting on with their thing, you know, through for decades. So it's not that it's new, new. It's just there's a particular sort of real switch in the way that the government is supporting the arts and that this kind of coming out into the public of the arts and the international attention is pretty much unprecedented. So in across Saudi, there's, you know, the Ministry of Culture, has set up in the last couple of years, um, incredible body of people that are really pushing forward across everything. And they include the culinary, just to pick up on our croissants again, they include everything from the culinary and within culture through to visual arts, architecture and design, 
film, uh, performance, everything. So every single sector of the arts is being looked at. There's a body of people there in the government who are pushing forward on that. Ithra, the, um, I'm sure you've you've talked, I think Todd is involved in Ithra and other people that you probably had them on the program, mm-hmm. uh, working in the Eastern province, obviously for many years right. as well, doing incredible things there. So, and then in Riyadh, you have the MISC Art Foundation, as well as all the government-led uh, activities as well. So there's this kind of Eastern province, Riyadh in the center, Jeddah on the West, that are these kind of three centers. And then obviously, Abha and everything happening um, in the South is also kind of uh, gaining recognition. And there's a new kind of, amongst all the different institutions and players talking to each other, a a new kind of push to make sure that we're also doing things um, across Saudi. And of course we should mention Alullah, which is, I don't know whether you've had anybody on the program yet from Alullah, but um, that, that is really being designated as the kind of art hub and incredible things are happening there. So looking at, the kind of history of archaeology, as well as going forward, what's going to, you know, involving contemporary artists in reimagining that incredible site. It, it, so yes. it's an incredibly vibrant time in Saudi. It's it's unbelievable. And then, you know, I think sitting in Jadza, there used to be a little bit of a conception of, okay, you know, the, the sort of art focus has shifted slightly towards Riyadh. You have an incredible Biennale in Riyadh, the Daria uh, Biennial. There's a lot of kind of talent gravitating towards the capital. But Jeddah, you know, didn't take this lying down and has kind of, you know, <laughs> kind of kicking back, saying, let's um, also celebrate this kind of cultural history of Jeddah. Obviously, Jeddah uh, famously has more sculpture in, across its city than any other city in the world, uh-huh. most of which was commissioned in, in the 60s by the mayor of Jeddah at that time, Mohammed Farsi. So it, there's a long history there of really thinking about culture in Jeddah and celebrating this kind of history of pilgrimage and position as a port city looking out to the world, being very open. So there's a lot of kind of history there to, to play on. And uh, Hai Jamil is the first kind of non-governmental um, initiative in, in Saudi of its kind. And we're hoping that um, other private uh, families and initiatives come along and sort of support as well. Um, but then we also sit alongside these amazing government initiatives and at the moment we have the Islamic Arts Biennial which is uh, the kind of counterpart to the Contemporary Art Biennial in 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 Riyadh and for listeners that think you know what is a biennial it's a very sort of art term but it's basically a big exhibition that happens every two years and you see in the Islamic Arts Biennial again the first of its kind in the world but I mean, of course, it should be. This is going to happen in, in in Saudi, and Saudi is the natural home for an exhibition like this. It pairs incredible treasures from Islamic uh, Islamic art and design treasures. So, from I mean, I, I, what did I? What was my favorite object? Oh, this incredible Hajj passport from eleven ninety in wow. the Gregorian calendar. So you can imagine these are absolute treasures that they've sourced from all over the world including incredible museums in, in Greece and, and other places, as well as things that have come from across Saudi. And they paired that with contemporary art and architecture commissions. So inviting today's leading artists and architects to come up with new works that kind of are in conversation with these other works. So if anybody's in Jeddah, I really highly recommend to go to this because even if you're not an art fan, you don't have to know anything about art and architecture or Islamic traditions, to find this absolutely mind-blowing. And the location, it's in the Hajj terminal. 
So it's the the site is this in, you know incredible design by SOM, who are amazing American architects, um, working with a Bangladeshi architect and others that you know they built this in the early eighties. It's an incredible site, and it's now used for this kind of art show as well as still being a working hash terminal. So that gives a little bit of an idea of kind of what's going on. And then high is there as a permanent fixture in the city. There are many other things popping up. So, and of course, you know, listeners will know that, you know, Saudi is an incredibly hospitable place. Anybody that shows an interest in the arts and culture scene there is so well looked after. There are so many people that are willing to take you on tours, give you advice. You know, it's, it's an incredibly welcoming and open uh, place and 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 people are just uh, there the artists there are just incredibly excited to be connected now with the world and able to sort of exchange in this way that they never have done before just amazing and just so you know uh you know on the 966 we 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 celebrate small achievements early on the ability to pronounce biennale was a big achievement for us <laughs> 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 Yeah, oh, so. I don't. I don't know. It's one of those things that you some you don't think about, and then you realize, okay, we stole this from but, but, the Italians I'll, for no particular but, reason, and just put it into our vocabulary. But you know, as, since we cover Saudi so closely, you know, all of a sudden it was exploding. There were being alleys everywhere. But it is, but it is interesting. And you make an interesting point, and and I, I don't want to, I don't want to keep it too long. But you know, you you referenced, you know, the art scene in in Jeddah is not being new, new because exactly what you say, it's been there. There's a there's a authentic and you know organic long-term history of it it is a bit new new in Riyadh um yeah more so and yeah. but I think it's really fascinating mm -hmm. that when you 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 know you point out these different mm -hmm. centers and you also mention you know the southwest and Abha because we had Sean Foley on the show and he talked about how you know mm -hmm. significant cultural incubating occurred down there uh that, completely you know and, and so it was it played a big role too so it is interesting how you see the dynamic the regional dynamics because that just is going to energize it more and more and you're just going to be more creativity coming out of all of it yeah a hundred percent and i think and sean's actually some he did a music event with us at, at high Jamil, so he, yeah. he we have a connection with him and um yeah no absolutely and i think what's what you can see now which is again a kind of very much a new movement but comes from this history is you know that the government is incredibly committed i mean if, if we think of globally what is the significance of this you know where are people building museums for the first you know in this kind of way where are people establishing cinemas and and a film industry there's at the moment globally i don't think there's anywhere like saudi i mean obviously you have a huge private museum building program in in china but that was that's been going on for quite a number of years and but the way that Saudi has really kind of exploded in terms of activity in the arts is I think it's it's pretty much unique in the world so there's a lot of international interest and I think it's you know there are things that we have to sort of think about and contend with everything is moving at an incredibly fast pace a lot of the you know bigger known artists who are able to produce um, big works on scale for everything from Desert X in Alula to the big Biennales that are coming, you know, they, they're finding themselves very stretched. So there's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of awareness that this speed is cannot maybe be sustained forever, but everybody wants to sort of jump on the train and not miss <laughs> it and be part of it, you know. 
But I think in places like uh, Hygiene we're kind of seeing like what what can we bring to the scene that's that's different? How can we kind of contribute? And one way we're trying to do that is all by providing us something of a sort of counterweight, saying also let's take advantage of this incredibly exciting moment, but let's also slow down. Let's think how do we put these kind of foundations for the long term? So we just, for example, um, launched a research program where every year we're awarding a scholar with a grant to develop a kind of uh, and write about and study histories of Saudi. So exhibition histories of Saudi, because you speak to contemporary artists and they they say, well, you know, I'm moving so fast. I don't have time to look at what happened in the 80s, let alone the 70s or 60s or 50s in Saudi. So this history could very quickly kind of slip through our fingers and, and get lost. So we're commissioning scholars and writers to look at the history, to write about it, to do that in Arabic, to make that um, open source kind of research. So we put that all on our, our website. People can come and sort of read about the, the history and tap into it. So also kind of thinking about how you put down foundations for the long term and provide artists of all kinds of a place to sort of hang out and develop their work in a really kind of considered way. So, you know, you've got to be on the train, but you also need to sort of make sure that uh, there are long term endeavours there. And again, we're just kind of thinking, how do we plug the gaps? That's our that's our role. Create impact, be pioneering, kind of move into different spaces, listen to the community, respond and, and make sure that whatever we're doing is complementing all the other initiatives going on so this but it's an amazingly collegiate atmosphere I mean if we just take high cinema for example we launched high cinema in December so it's a very new part of high and it's Saudi's first uh, bespoke independent cinema so Ithra has been doing amazing things showing independent film for some time but this is a kind of slightly different take it's a two-screen uh, cinema complex with a research space um, archive space and educational spaces as well and um, we're showing, uh, you know, we're, the idea is to show films from all over the world that are kind of independent art house films, documentaries, things in different languages, and also to show Saudi film and encourage Saudi filmmakers to come and show their, their works here. So it's been an incredibly exciting endeavor, but of course being the first something is not always easy. And at the moment, Saudi is funnily enough set up for multiplexes if you employ 2000 people and have 12 screens showing, um, you know, the big blockbusters, you can get a license, no problem. If you're kind of trying to do something quite different, you know, this is a kind of emergent uh, idea and art form. So we've had the most fantastic relationship with the government on this, where they've said, okay, this is an interesting concept. We actually want to see art house cinemas across the country. Let's work together to figure out, you know, we'll use high cinema as a kind of pilot project we'll learn ah. let's work on it together and figure out what does a cinema like this need so it's really interesting to be in this role where as an independent organize uh, independent um organization we have this kind of relationship with government where we're figuring things out together so that kind of very collegiate atmosphere of what does the country need how can we all work together to provide it let's have an open forum what are you doing i can do this to complement what you're doing I mean, that, again, I think that's very unusual. If I speak to colleagues in New York or London or Paris, they don't have that kind of relationship with right. um, government and with colleagues anymore. So it's, I guess it's, we're putting down the building blocks together and it's a, that's a really exciting kind of endeavor and one that's very open with uh, conversations. So 
yeah, tremendously exciting. At the moment at High Cinema, we have um, a whole season that's dedicated to children's films. Yeah. So we're doing, mm. yeah, super exciting. So we're saying to all the kids, uh, you know, families and, and kids, we're doing some free screenings to get everybody really excited about cinema and independent filmmaking and real cinema. And then we're also doing programs with schools. So schools bring their classes. They see a range of different animations and animated films in different languages from across the world. They do a behind the scenes at the cinema kind of tour. So they kind of see what is a projection boost? You know, what is a 35 mil film? How does a cinema kind of work? And then they do an art class after it in which they create characters that they saw in the films. So it's a kind of 360 experience for, for kids. And, you know, it's it's so funny, all the teachers, all the team at High Jamil just keep saying, I wish I'd had this when I was yeah, a kid. It's brilliant. You know? it's brilliant. <laughs> it's brilliant marketing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's also in, in many of these kind of things that are new and pioneering in different countries around the world. If you get the kids and get the kids enthusiastic, they bring the parents who might be harder to sure. persuade sometimes, yeah. you know, and then you can kind of really create change, you know, which is really exciting. Uh Antonia Carver, director Archimil. I, uh, on behalf of my our listeners and our viewers, I, I just want to say this was such a treat and such a privilege. Thank you. Thank and, you. And thank you for sitting down with us at the nine six six. This was just really, uh, really priceless. Terrific. Thank you so much for. I mean, I, I really appreciate it a lot. We're all about you know trying to get the message across about how art and culture can transform society and you know really bring people together and enable exchange in an in an entirely different way to any other field so it's all about communication so i, I really appreciate the chance to come and and chat to you and any listeners if they want to check us out um our website is archimil.org we're on instagram with hi jamil jamil art center and archimil and we absolutely welcome all visitors to our centers and there are many other ways to interact and get in touch wherever you are in the world. Richard, that was your and therefore our conversation with Antonia Carver. And a reminder, you can listen to just conversations or just segments if you go to our YouTube page. And we have all of our previous conversations with previous guests there. Um, but Richard, that was awesome. Great, again, to, to listen to that as an end user for me and, and just was a really great conversation. You know, we we uh, on the Sustag Review and and the um, the nine six six. There are occasions where you carry the Sustag Review, occasions where I carry it. We're on the travel. We're doing something. We're sick. Whatever. Same thing with nine six six. You know, we, that's one of the beautiful things about being part of a team. And um, and you and I both sort of remark if we haven't had anything to do with the creation of the product when we get to the product. So I, you do a Sustag Review, and I look at it and I go, "Holy crap, this is really good." It's a lot of fun to see that how what a valuable thing it is. I just I'm surprised you said that because I could not agree more. Like the last yesterday, the day before, when I was completely knocked over and I got to read the review as the end user was so informative because I wanted, you know, we want to stay up to date all the time, 365 days a year. And I sort of thought, okay, like, what would I open up to try to discover this? And it just opened up my email, boom, everything's there. It's the most digestible piece of, I mean, it, it's, yeah, anyway, we're tooting our own horn, but thank you for saying that because I completely agree. And that was cool to use, uh, to listen to as an end user. It's just fascinating stuff. 
Yeah. Um, so thank you for carrying the torch. Well, then, um, you know, it was my turn. You're, <laughs> you, you've carried the torch many a time. Unfortunately, though, if that's if we're doing turns, I hate what awaits for you <laughs> if it's any sickness <laughs> at all, because I uh, couldn't wish that upon anyone. So um, anyway, well, let's hope my, you know, my turn away is not necessarily because I'm my deathbed with yep, well, know, said. <laughs> well said, <laughs> something else. Richard, let's get to Yella. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. Well, I didn't even, my voice isn't even there. I just whispered yeah, I like it. The that whisper. was really weird. The whisper effect was <laughs> quite, quite good. It was new material. I apologize for creeping everybody out with that. It no, meant to be the traditional yella. It was, it, it. it was a nice little <laughs> twist on things. All right. Uh, yella number uh, one. Uh, CNN Travel Features, Daria, latest gig of project aiming to transform Saudi Arabia on the edge of the Saudi capital, Riyadh. And you know this place well. Uh, Lucian, you and I have been there, but you've been there a number of times this year already. Mm -hmm. On the edge of the Saudi capital, Riyadh, is another giga project that aims to attract 27 million of those annual visitors to a 14 square kilometer site filled with historical and cultural attractions. Considered to be the birthplace of the nation, Daria is the ancestral seat of the Al Saud dynasty and home to the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Al Taraf, the site of the first Saudi state established in 1727. Daria has huge significance for modern Saudi Arabia, both historically and culturally, and as a key giga, giga project in the kingdom's Vision 2030 plan. Yeah, Richard, this is um, this is going to be a must visit when you visit Riyadh, and they've totally finished it. You and I visited there in 2016, I think was the last time that we were there, and they had already done a few of the, I mean, one or two of the puzzle pieces of a hundred puzzle piece development. It is so huge now. And I spent my last day in Riyadh there driving around it with a friend. And, and it's so big, you have to actually drive around it. I mean, it, there's so much going on and so much you can't see from the road, actually, because they're building, I mean, massive buildings that have huge footprints and will go very deep underground as well. And what I think is uh, really interesting about it is the architecture. I mean, you have developments in Saudi Arabia. You, I mean, look at Kaft. Kaft could be in any major city in the world. It could be in Singapore. It could be in New York. I mean, you, you kind of don't know where you are when you're in Kaft. There's only some elements that hint to you that, that you're in Arabia, whereas Daria is just like, um, and you're going to see it in a few weeks. It, and, and it's really just a scale out version of what we saw back in 2015. It's unbelievable and it's so cool because what they're doing looks modern like a lot of glass but then their traditional building shape and the building color and just as like cool i mean it's very original that would not look in place in new york or in singapore or anywhere else it's uniquely saudi in design which is awesome um and richard uh jerry inzarello ceo of this development um, that is a huge sort of get for Saudi Arabia as they prioritize this giga project. He's all over the place in the media and he's cordially invited to join us on the 966 as well. Oh, he's uh, just a maverick. And what he's doing there is incredible. I mean, you have you have the development and you have the architecture that I just mentioned, but you also have amazing things like, you know, uh, racing tracks and, and walkability. I mean, it's just I don't know. It's 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 just really cool. We're gonna have some uh, footage I got just from driving around there on the, oh, cool. the YouTube videos. Yeah, um, I made, managed to not drop my camera too many times, which is uh, something else. But you know, then you'll have things like tennis tournaments there, and I mean, you can still see the original wadi, wadi Hanifa that runs through it. It's not much of a wadi. It's not quite the size of the Potomac River, but it is. It just it's cool. You're there, and you feel like you're in history. So yeah, this is a good. This is a good one here because this is just. 
I mean, this is going to be the place to visit. It's going to be like, oh, make sure you see Daria and this and this and this. It'll be the first thing you list when you are talking about visiting Riyadh. So, yeah, and really the, awesome. And I, I like, I think you're right. You know, you were t- you referred to the King of Bella Financial District, but any other thing, this is, there's an authenticity to this. Obviously, this is the, the, the capital seat of the first Saudi state. Interesting. We had, you know, one of our, one big things was Saudi, uh, Saudi founding day when we mm-hmm. were there in 2016 or whatever together, uh, the commonly accepted Saudi founding day was 1747 or something like that. That has yeah. now changed. Um, and again, back to, you know, creating and forming your own narrative, which is what the Saudis are doing. Jerry Anzarello, what a treat. Boy, wouldn't he he'd be fantastic? I mean, this is a guy, you know, former vice chairman of Forbes Travel, CEO of IMG Artists, decades of experience in travel and hospitality. And apparently many, many years ago, he went to, the UNESCO site of Atarif, which is the, the you know what they call the, the it's been a UNESCO heritage site for a long time, but he was excited about it, fascinated with it for many years, long before Vision Twenty Thirty, and so for him to come in, and and he boy he does bring energy and enthusiasm, doesn't he? He sure does. <laughs> Obviously, tremendous amounts of experience, but um, yep. I, I you know th- your personal you know recommendation and 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 commentary is i think is is compelling but it is really something that's worth seeing and and just the numbers it's a 63 billion dollar project i mean we have to remember it's going to be like 38 new hotels 26 cultural attractions you know it's eventually 100,000 people are going to uh, you know are expected to have you know live there yeah um, yeah so, and i guess there was a uh, i'm sorry please no 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 so it's it's a, this this is this is, you know, when we talk about the Giga projects, this is one of my favorites because not only is it massive, ex- creative, sort of jaw dropping, you know, but it also has organic ties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Richard, we, when we were there in 2016, there was just a disconnect in my brain because they had, they were finishing out the museum as well. We got an exclusive tour of that. And then they had a sort of shopping area and a mall. And I, I sort of thought, oh yeah, like this thing is almost done, right? You know, as of 2019 or whatever, 2020. And people looked at me, they were like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I thought that that was it. And then it's it turns out to be, you know, 50 times that, you know, But and, and recently they've announced things like, you know, international hotel brands coming in there. And so it was just really cool to get the sense of the scale here because, yeah, I mean, that is going to be, yeah, I mean, you're going to, you're going to want to see that. Like you would want to see, the Eiffel Tower area in Paris and, you know, Times Square in New York, because it's just so like authentically Saudi um, and they're doing a good job with it. It's not gauche. Uh, so anyway, just, um, yeah, really cool. Um, send me send me selfies of you there, especially the big flag. And I, I posted this on my Instagram story, but the flag is so big. And I just sort of did it like a story or whatever and like looked up at the flag. It's so big. It looked like CGI. I kind of couldn't that. unsee that. I was like, I saw man, that. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So anyway, really cool. Richard, yellow number two, Saudi Arabia's PIF invests $1.3 billion in construction companies. The PIF has invested $1.3 billion by way of subscribing to new shares as part of the capital increases in each of Nesma and Partners Contracting Company, El Safe Engineering Contracting Company, Al Bawani Holding Company, and Al Mabani General Contractors Company. The investment will allow the construction services sector in Saudi Arabia to scale up, scale up capacity, enhance capabilities, boost growth, drive advanced technology adoption, and improve local supply chains for current and future projects. The companies' partnership with the PIF will help them expand their operations and businesses on a regional and international scale. 
just uh, fascinating. And, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just a little story, you'd think. It's, but it wraps up so many things what the PIF, PIF is doing. Um, you know, in order to achieve everything that's going on, it takes enormous contracting capacity. And they want this, obviously, to be, you know, spearheaded, uh, or at the very least, equal partnership you know, with Saudi companies. And, you know, so, so these investments are just another boost to companies they think are, are professionally and well-run and can carry the mantle of essentially saying, look, in the contracting sector, we want you to carry the mantle of Vision 2030, which is a diversification, which is a growth and expansion and, and, and you know, uh, upping of best practices, upping of capacities and these sorts of things. And also part of this, you know, investment is to, you know, look abroad for investment, that sort of thing. And I just want to say a couple of things about this. One, very cool if, you, if you're one of these four. Two, uh, one of my oldest friends and someone you know well in Saudi Arabia is Khaled Al-Saif, is CEO of Al-Saif Engineering. So Mabruk, congratulations. Well-earned. You run an amazing company and you've built it. I'm talking to, to, to Khaled now. You know, you've built it uh, you've just been extraordinarily professional and capable in your stewardship of that company. Uh, and three, I thought it was interesting because we had Jake, you know, Jacob Mum on on the show, uh, and, and you know, he's a managing director of, of Bechtel and head really of the BACS consortium, the Bax consortium. And you know, the member one of you know the, the, the so the Bax consortium is Bechtel, Almabani, General Consolidated, CCC Contractors, and Siemens. So. Almabani, one of the members of that Bax consortium, is one of these four countries that I mean, companies that you know has been designated as you're doing a great job. We want you to be even better at it. Here's some help. Big year for Khalid Al Saif. His yes, his daughter is. gets engaged to the Crown Prince of Jordan, yeah. <laughs> and then the PI buys it. It's good you to be Khalid. Khalid. <laughs> Khaled can't sit still. He's always he's always busy doing impressive stuff. But yep. yeah, yeah, he ranks up right. there, Richard, and the hardest working guys in Saudi Arabia. And that top is pretty crowded and really hard to crack into the top three. Um, you know, so I, I didn't get to ask him, but if if your daughter marries the Crown Prince of Jordan, who pays for the wedding? <laughs> oh man, it's gonna be a really big bill, whatever it is. I know, but yeah. I, I mean, think both can afford it, um, <laughs> but um, I, you know, I, maybe. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's a good question. I, typically, right? If it's an um, arranged well, in, marriage, right? Yeah, Isn't it? The and opposite? it wasn't arranged. It wasn't arranged. They met ah, in school. Okay. But yeah, cool. it was definitely not arranged. They met. They met in school, uh, and and so you know, it, it, and anyway, it, you know, we don't want to get too much into it. But the, this is a guy I hold in high regard. Yeah, I just have tremendous uh, admiration for all he's done and mm -hmm. his energy and his intelligence. So anyway, this is a very cool from the PIF point of view, and it's very cool from the diversification point of view, and it's very cool from the contracting sector in Saudi Arabia point of view. Yeah, and it makes sense too, right? I mean, if you're the PIF, you're saying, look, we've got a lot of construction going on here in the next two decades. Um, we're going to believe in these companies and their ability to deliver. We want to show them buy-in. So uh, it's a good business move, and it's very interesting. Uh, you're right. This seems like it could be a small story, but in fact, it this, I mean, it ties very many stories into one. So yeah, it's a good one. Uh, number three, Saudi Arabia has been chosen to host the next edition of the FIFA Club World Cup with the football tournament due to kick off in December. Well, they don't wait on this. 
Intercontinental competition will be staged from December 12 to 22. Saudi Arabia will be only the sixth host of the competition since its inception in 2000. Football is a national sport of Saudi Arabia rooted in communities in all corners of the country where 80% of the population play, attend, or follow the game. The awarding of the FIFA Club World Cup 2023 represents the latest chapter of Saudi football's development. The kingdom was also recently confirmed as host of the 2027 AFC Asian Cup and has an active bid in place to host the 2026 AFC Women's Asian Cup. Boy, what a what a year for Saudi football, Saudi soccer. It's the official nomenclature on this uh, podcast, but um, momentum truly. You got Ronaldo there now with Georgina. Uh, driving headlines on on every, everywhere they go and everything they do. Uh, Al Halal made it to this year's Club World Cup final, lost to Real Madrid. Actually, Richard, when I was landing uh, in Saudi Arabia last week, I was getting in my hotel late. Everyone was sort of nervous and sad looking. There was a huge gathering outside my hotel, and I asked what was going on there, having not really slept much. And um, <laughs> the the receptionist was like, oh, there's the Club World Cup final and uh, Al Halal is losing 5-3. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, sorry, can I still catch the end of the game? But uh, just exciting times there for, for Saudi football. And it's sort of unknown whether or not the Ronaldo investment will pay back. It seems to me like it will just in, I mean, sort of intangible, unmeasurable things like growth and PR and branding and stuff. But um, I mean, this will be huge. It's a 10 day event. It's going to happen just before the Christmas holiday. Um, just really cool um, and and very good for Saudi. So the home team gets an automatic bid or the home country gets an automatic bid. Uh, so they'll definitely have a team in it, um, either Al-Halal or um, Al Nasser. Al- yeah, Al Nasser. Yes. Oh, so, but it could be, you know, we don't we don't know. It could be it could be some upstart. It could be Wrexham. It, Saudi Wrexham. It could be, or a, a feisty little team out of um, Al Majma with uh, <laughs> yes, a smaller stadium, but a very scrappy, you know, they play as a team. Al Faya squad. You're right. <laughs> I mean, you never know. Uh, so, <laughs> boy, that would be a big stage for our boys, huh, Richard? It really would. Boy, we'd, yeah, we'd, we'd be rocking those jerseys. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's uh, tattoo territory right there. They can't get it. making any promises here. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that would be, you know, you know, my oldest has a few tattoos, some of which he has to explain. That's, you know, can you imagine me trying to explain an Alfaya tattoo? I didn't know that about your oldest. I plan to ask him, but oh, yeah. well, uh, it was it was under the radar for a very long time because his mom, yeah, mm-hmm. his mom actually cried the first time he told her she had a tattoo. <laughs> See, I'm uninked at this point. I'm I'm sans ink, and at this point, to get ink would be like. It have to be. I don't even know what would qualify, but the bar is now so high. Whereas if I'm much younger, like your son, yeah, you know, there's not quite as high of a bar. And now it's like, are you going to do it now? You're old. And you know, <laughs> he's in. You know, he's a young officer in the army, and, and mm-hmm. so you need to. You need to. You know, that's just, I, that's just sort of part of the course. Part for the course. Yeah, <laughs> just such a great, great young man, Richard. You raised him so right. So. Um, um, a, yes. Number three? Number is it three. Three? Two, a really hard story. Turkey's, no, no, no. It's yellow. It's it's four, right? This it four? should be me. 
Boy, we're really organized oh, yeah, yeah, right now. Ahead. Yeah, sorry. Do good. I, I, this is a tough one. Um, yes, this is tough. Getting serious. Thousands dead. Millions displaced. The earthquake fallout in Turkey and Syria. Turkey's death toll has climbed above 44,000 people. The country's disaster authority has said this number is expected to rise further given that more than 345,000 apartments were destroyed and many people are still unaccounted for. In Syria, already devastated by years of war, authorities have said more than 5,800 people have died. Hans Kluge, the World Health Organization's Europe director, said relief workers were facing, quote, the worst natural disaster in the region for a century, adding that 26 million people need assistance across both countries. The WHO launched the largest rescue operation of its kind in the organization's 75-year history. Yeah, I mean, we have this is this is obviously something that occurred in Turkey and Syria, but it's a region wide, it's a global thing. And you, you just in reading that little blurb, you know, when you talk about you know worst, biggest operation in seventy five year history, you know, twenty six million people. I mean, the, I mean, this was a three hundred plus kilometer long event. You know, the you know the rift was seven meters plus in some places in terms of displacement. I mean, uh, a seven point seven. Magnitude 7.7 earthquake for 65 seconds, followed almost, you know, very closely by a second earthquake above seven for 45 seconds. Um, apparently, that first one had the the energy equivalent of 500 atomic bombs. I mean, just catastrophic, and in in very difficult difficult areas, you know, sort of along that. So I gather there's an Arabian shelf going north and it's running into an anatolian shelf that is squeezed between it and europe and and it's a slide shelf which is like the like the um san andreas fault so it doesn't crunch up it slips and you know builds up a lot of energy and slips and and so turkey's been hit by a lot of the earthquakes i think it's you know 21 earthquakes of magnitude seven or higher since 1900 um but just disastrous and and a very you know serious besieged anyway and this in the northwest territory which is disputed territory a lot of the territory is is sort of controlled by a group that's designated as a terrorist group by the west and the u.s um it's just catastrophic and uh, everyone's rallying to do what they can but logistically it's very hard to help um you know so it, it, it's it's going to be a huge rebuilding cost and process for turkey and it's just devastating for syria which is already in disarray and you know you have you have sort of displaced uh, people displaced again and displaced again and displaced again it's just uh, it's it, it's sad and catastrophic sad and catastrophic um takes the breath out of your out of your lungs just seeing the footage and learning oh, about some of the stories it's just absolutely horrible and uh yeah i mean there's there's nothing that anyone can say to undo the heartbreak and the, the damage um we know that saudi arabia and other nations are flying in to help but no matter how much help is provided there's only so much that can be done well, just horrible just yeah. absolutely horrible I mean, the Gulf countries, um, you know, close to 400 million or more in donations already. Um, Saudi Arabia had a, you know, a online charitable donation that drew over 100, uh, 1.5 million people and raised 100 million dollars, you know, almost overnight. Uh, but, you know, this is going to be a long, long rebuild. And it's going to be, you know, it'll be fraught with politics with people blaming 
other people and and you know trying to get in and help aid you know you, you there's already some of the aid that's gone into syria is being sold on the streets of damascus because again because it's a fractured country and the access is is spotty and and regulated and difficult uh you know it's as so often happens you know uh, folks who are down get kicked again and again mm-hmm. and that's a, what you saw with a lot of people certainly in in uh in syria and and places in turkey too yeah absolutely horrible um five my turn uh mm-hmm. iraqi and saudi officials signed a memorandum of understanding on 19 february to share sensitive intelligence and deep and security cooperation marking the first time the two nations have signed a security pact since 1983 the mou entails quote all forms of security cooperation exchange of points of views and undertaking joint security activities unquote Iraqi state media reported Iraq and Saudi Arabia share an 800 kilometer, 800, 800 kilometer border. Mm-hmm. The historic MOU comes at a time when Baghdad has started to normalize ties with the Gulf countries following decades of isolation due to the 1990 Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. Easily one of the most idiotic and terrible miscalculations in recent American history, Richard, uh, the war in Iraq. It will be decades, decades until we are beyond that strategic blunder, just at at the 30,000 foot level. Um, Expensive blunder for the U.S., $1.9 to $2.1 trillion. That's $6,300 per taxpayer. Um, That says nothing of the lives lost in the war, tragically, on both sides, the families and communities harmed on both sides. If you're a regional power like Saudi Arabia, you only have to deal with the cards as dealt to you. And no one is saying Saddam Hussein wasn't a dictator or a horrible or a terrible person or did unspeakable things, but removing him under false pretenses and then destabilizing um, the region um, at an enormous cost to the U.S. taxpayer. And for what? We're still feeling that today. But um, Saudi Arabia has to deal with what it has in front of it. The majority of Iraq is Shia today. It has to use diplomacy and um, foreign policy and it's sort of a, a mixture of both foreign policy, diplomacy, and also hard power to sort of uh, make sure that they're, you know, is seeing its interest through in Iraq. But um, yeah, I mean, this is this is very positive development for Saudi Arabia in Iraq because it's it's just it's a very difficult sort of situation there. It obviously is in between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So, um, you know, it's tough for Saudi Arabia to, from a you know diplomacy standpoint, really be super tight with Iraq, but it is, it is, I mean, this is moving in that direction and it, and it has to do that because, uh, you know, it can't afford to turn its back on it necessarily, but, um, yeah, a little bit of a rambling, uh, the war no, in Iraq no, pissing and, me and, off. So. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't disagree with you on the, the U S policy side. Um, uh, you know, from the Saudi perspective, it's, it is stunning, isn't it? This is a this is a, a major country with with the third, I think, largest uh, oil reserves in the in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, on your border, on your eight hundred kilometer border, uh, you know, has access to the to the Gulf. Um, Forty million people. Forty million, by the way, in terms of Iraqis of the typically well educated, capable people. Um, <clears throat> And you don't have any kind of security pact with them, and 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 it, I, I'm I, this this little this blurb reminded me a little bit of our conversation with Joshua Yaffe when he was talking about um, uh, Ibn Saud 
uh, King Abdulaziz, the, the founder of, of Saudi Arabia, and his sort of fraught relationship with Iraq, and how it's always been very uh, a very wary relationship, as you know, both as competitors, neighbors, friends, and that sort of thing. Um, so uh, it is good to see these things become normalized. It is interesting that eighty three agreement would have been done with Saddam Hussein during the war with Iran. So you know, you go back to that time; that was a very difficult time. Uh, this is important, and this is part and parcel of something we've talked about, which is the sort of the diplomatic out, outburst in the region, and, and a lot of it's led by Saudi Arabia, and trying to normalize these relationships, deconflict them, and move them into better, more collegial, more mutually beneficial situations. So this is important. Uh, it, you know, so, so this is great. It's just really notable this, you know, 40 years since the last security arrangement with this major country on your border. Very notable and very mature of Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you look, take a look back, U.S. goes in, messes everything up and leaves, you know, and just leaves this situation. So it's just well said, Richard. Um, Yella number six, uh, finishing on a bit of a lighter note here, Lydia Ko <laughs> clinches her uh, third victory in four starts at the Aramco Saudi Ladies International. Lydia Ko began the new year the same way she ended 2022 with a big win and a big check as she closed with a four under 68 to win the Saudi Aramco Ladies International. Here we are, Richard, also talking golf. We got to yeah. mention it at there number 76. Get the streak going. Co, the number <laughs> one player in women's golf, held off Aditi Ashok of India to capture the richest prize among regular ladies European tour events. She won $750,000 from the $5 million prize fund at the Royal Greens Golf and Country Club. Co ended last year by winning the LPGA Tour finale and $2 million, the richest payout in women's golf, which elevated her to number one in the world. Um, you know, there's a lot of hand wringing about Saudi Arabia and its its involvement with international sports. Uh, I thought this was interesting, and and we included it because it is interesting. It's a big deal, and Aramco has really added a lot of life to that that ladies uh, European tour. Uh, but it is notable for those who who agonize over Saudi Arabia and its involvement in sports that Lydia Ko made the same amount as the and the purse was the same amount for all the field as the Saudi international men's event uh, that just occurred earlier in the month. And this is something that you don't see in the, you know, the LPGA certainly doesn't have same purses as the PGA in the U S but uh, you go to Saudi Arabia and women and men are competing for the same prize money. Same yeah. Amount of prize money. Yeah. This is, and that was, this was a loaded field for the women's, um, so this was a, a good win for her to keep it going. Um, yeah, this is just really, I mean, this, this is the, this Richard, this is another thing that almost went under the radar over the last weekend uh, because she won. And then just so much other stuff was happening by Monday. It was like, okay. And Monday was a, a holiday here in the U S but yeah, I mean, a $5 million prize um, yeah. just to kick off the year. And this is happening at a, a place where, like you just said, held the, the men's tournament. Um Lydia Ko is in Fuego right now. Um, she, she she started off, as you mentioned, I guess uh, maybe I did it in the read, getting late and haven't slept much actually, but um, she came from behind um, to, to win this, uh, was down by a stroke on the last day and and balled out. So balled um, out. <laughs> yes. really, really cool to see that. Royal Greens looks so dope, Richard. I would love oh, to play man. there. I would Are love we to, play golf to play golf in general. Someday? It's been uh, a few months for your boy. But yeah. if we can't play it, we get to talk about it, which is we good. Can. So um, it's going to be 70 degrees here, Richard. And uh, It says tomorrow and then back to freezing on the weekend. So yeah. It's just, 
Yeah. Such is, such is the world in our, our era of climate change. Indeed. RIP all the flowers that seem to be blooming around here will go <laughs> below freezing on Saturday night, which stinks after reaching 74. Um, but that's quite a swing in weather here. Um, and here we are talking about the weather to, to round things off. Richard, this was a really good one. A reminder, subscribe wherever you're getting this. Um, we will be back next week. And then uh, we've got just so many great guests in the queue here, Richard, to, to tee up over the next few weeks. And there's a lot happening in Saudi Arabia. So we should be firing on all cylinders here unless I get another crippling stomach bug. It just <laughs> knocks me right coming. on my butt. So um, inshallah, that doesn't happen. But uh, Richard, thank you very much. Happy founding day. And I'll see you next week. Great job. Thank you, Lucian. Welcome thank you. back. Thanks. <laughs>